Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Story One About 15 years ago, a student at the college where I teach approached me in the hallway outside of my office. For a class project in a colleague's course, she wanted to ask me one question. And that question was, who was a negative reference group of mine? And by negative reference group, she meant who was a group of whom I so disapproved that I would use that group's opinions and behaviors as a kind of standard for myself in that I would do all that I could not to feel and act the same way the group did. Without missing a beat, I said that my negative reference group was talk radio hosts. Story two. And these are not my words, as I'll explain in just a bit. Sandra Fluke's statement on behalf of Georgetown Law Students for Reproductive Justice in February 2012 placed her in the center of a firestorm. Her public advocacy for insurance coverage of contraceptives resulted in an extended series of personal attacks from radio personality Rush Limbaugh. Limbaugh's three-day tirade began on February 29th when he offered demeaning characterizations of Fluke including that she, quote, wants to be paid to have sex. She's having so much sex she can't afford the contraception. She wants you and me and the taxpayers to pay her to have sex. What does that make us? We're the pimps, end quote. Although this suggests that Fluke proposed that tax revenues be used to pay for contraceptives, her actual position was that contraception should be covered by the student-funded health insurance in place, which was not subsidized by the Catholic University or the government. I wanted to read that excerpt because Limbaugh's comments about Fluke are vivid examples of his style. He inflames emotion more than he informs reasoning, and he's willing to misrepresent the facts to do so. But that style sells, and it sells big. Forbes listed Limbaugh as one of the 20 highest-paid celebrities in 2018, earning over $84 million. But he's not alone. Such a strategy sells big for others, on radio and on television. My guest today is one of two Tufts University professors who have studied such media, publishing their work in multiple articles and in the book, The Outrage Industry, from which the excerpt I read came. Jeffrey Barry is a political scientist at Tufts, and he and I recently talked about incivility, outrage rhetoric, and more. I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled Trash Talk. So you are the John Richard Skews class of 1941 professor of political science at Tufts University? That's a mouthful, but yes, that's, <laughs> that's my title. And you're a Johns Hopkins PhD, I see. I am, yeah. Tell me, what, what drew you to political science? My mother. Okay. I remember from a very early age hearing 
her talk politics. She was an activist and she got me interested in politics. And from a very early age, as soon as I could read the newspaper, I would uh, read the stories on national politics and California politics where I grew up. And it was always um, something that I was fascinated by. I don't have the personality to be an elected politician. I'm too, too withdrawn, typical academic. Yeah. So being uh, someone who studied politics was the next best thing. And I see that you're 74 PhD, which means the 60s, um, uh, at least late 60s, must have been sort of a coming of age time for you. Which yeah. would have been interesting. Yeah, thanks for revealing my age to you. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, having now outed me, I can tell you I was at, actually at Berkeley during those oh, wow. years. And it was quite an education. I was not a campus radical, but uh, certainly you cannot be there and not get caught up in all the demonstrations and the um, you know repeated confrontations with the police and uh, boycotts of class. And it was uh, it was quite a coming of age. And you know, the one thing at Berkeley at that time is that there was this feeling of being at the center of the earth. Yeah, that all eyes were focused on Berkeley, and you know, in a sense, for good reason because the anti-war movement really took hold there more fiercely than just about any place else. And so now, one of the areas that you study is. Uh, incivility and outrage, and I'm curious, uh, what drew you to the, to those areas of study or that area of study? It's interesting uh, in that it's a late in life um, source of fascination for me. I studied for many years conventional politics, um, working within the system, interest groups, sort of neighborhood associations, Congress. And uh, it was more or less an accident uh, that I became involved in this project with my uh, colleague in the sociology department, Sarah Soberai. So there's no connection that you see between your experiences at Berkeley at a time of fervent protest and your current research focus on outrage rhetoric in the media. Not consciously, uh, maybe somewhere it was still rattling in the back of my mind. But when I left Berkeley and went to Johns Hopkins for graduate work, I began the research on Congress, which is really very conventional yep. uh, type of politics. So it's maybe it was a rebellion against Berkeley that I was tired of that and wanted to study, you know, people that weren't out in the streets, but people that were uh, involved in uh, the more traditional form of politics. So to Move toward your work with uh, your colleague, uh, Sarah Soberai. I actually was in a, re a meeting recently, and one of the other participants referred, um, just in a matter-of-fact fashion, to a decline in civility. And I pushed back a bit because I, I wondered if there really has been um, a decline or as much of a decline as they seem to imply Based on your work, what's your sense of whether there's been a decline in civility, and, and what do you mean by that? The, uh, the book is phrased around outrage, uh, which we use instead of incivility, uh, and we don't regard them as 
uh, synonyms. Okay. Uh, incivility can be sort of mild rudeness or, you know, rolling one's eyes, you know, just not being a nice person to the others in the room. Uh, outrage is a form which we define as a provocation mm -hmm. and focus more around uh, trying to get an emotional reaction out of an audience by media properties. And so that reaction is most likely going to be fear or anger or shame, uh, something that makes you actually feel bad. And while incivility might uh, do that to you, we think that uh, outrage is a, is a more extreme version of uh, on that spectrum. So when I hear people talk about incivility, I often trot out this example of uh, Senator Charles Sumner, who, after delivering some pretty fiery uh, rhetoric in criticism of advocates of slavery uh, at the time, was actually subjected to a violent attack uh, using a cane by one of his colleagues in the Senate. Uh, I cite that as an example that actually incivility or perhaps uh, efforts at, at outrage have been around for quite some time. But it sounds as if, if I understand you now, I may be missing the point uh, in that the, the violent attack wouldn't have been an example, I think, of what you're calling outrage, although perhaps some of Sumner's rhetoric um, uh, might have been an example of outrage rhetoric. You're actually on the right track. There's always been this edge of American politics that is unpleasant and uncivil and brings people to the brink of fighting, if not fighting, as was the case with Sumner. But um, our feeling is that what's changed is that the media environment now accelerates and intensifies and expands uh, the reach of outrage. So it can happen instantaneous across the nation as opposed to um, events that are localized. You know, in the case of Sumner, it may not have reached much of the public you know, a day or two later when the local newspapers carried it. So there is something very different today uh, about the scope and extent of uh, incivility and outrage. So um, you're not far off. It's just that we've gone farther now than I think we ever have before in terms of its commonality. I'd like to talk about some of the changes in the environment that, if I understand your argument, may have facilitated some of the proliferation of outrage. And, and in particular, I, I, I saw when I was reading a 2011 article that you wrote with Soberai on, on page 22, you say, and here I quote, outrage thrives in a narrow casting environment. Can you, for the benefit of listeners, explain what you meant by that? We're talking about the business world. Yep. And narrow casting means that media properties can now make money off of very small audiences because of the internet and cable television. So whereas, uh, you know, in the 1960s or 1950s, um, TV news reached a very broad audience and uh, often would go to, you know, common denominators, people that across all political ideologies could relate to. So that doesn't mean that it was bland, but uh, it wasn't provocative. And the reason why um, they 
were very general in their approach to the audience or reached for a general audience, better way of saying it, is uh, because they had, uh, they had to have an advertising environment where they could sell ads to people that wanted to reach that broad audience. So, you know, it might be automobile manufacturers, for example. Mm-hmm. So now Fox and MSNBC, for example, they don't need to reach that broad an audience. So Fox, you know, for all its fiery rhetoric and how much we discuss it, uh, its top audience in an hour is about 3 million people, which is not a small number of people, but it's nothing like, uh, you know, the NBC nightly news uh, with Huntley and Brinkley uh, had in the 1950s and 1960s. So they can do that because uh, cable television can deliver a narrow audience with uh, fixed demographic characteristics uh, and rather than a mixed audience uh, that, you know, Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley had to reach. It's advertising efficiency is, you know, a shorter way of saying what I just said. Well, and I appreciate your reference to efficiency because from what I saw across multiple articles, a theme in your work seems to be the ways in which outrage as a, as a media strategy has become highly uh, efficient. And, and in part, uh, unless I'm mistaken, that's also a product of some policy changes such as deregulation. It has. Yes. So deregulation, uh, uh, changed the talk radio industry in particular, uh, by allowing, um, uh, chains to buy up lots of different radio stations where there tended to be, there were limits before terms of how much one company could own. And uh, so that that changed uh, the, the radio industry, which is the biggest part of the outreach industry now. And Clear Channel is still the largest conglomerate in uh, talk radio or in radio generally? It, it is. They've, uh, they have hundreds and hundreds of stations. And uh, they've fallen on some tough times in radio. Um, and I think it's, one, it's hyper-competitive. There's, it's not like Fox, which has a monopoly over conservative, uh, conservatives on television. But talk radios, there's lots of different programs. And um, the advertising market was terribly damaged by Rush Limbaugh uh, and his, um, his mocking of Sandra Fluke. Uh, if you remember some years ago yeah. over her testimony before a congressional panel and advertisers began to flee under pressure from liberal advocacy groups. So a uh, clear channel and cumulus uh, and other um, talk radio chains uh, have uh, are making less money these days. One of the things that I still don't fully understand about your argument is what the reason is for the difference in strategy between Clear Channel on the one hand, and say NBC back in the days of the big three networks. I see them similar, uh, similar in that in both cases, they have a large share of the market, television in one case, radio in the other. But whereas in the days of the big three, uh, such a network as NBC, by your argument, had, did not engage in provocation in the way that uh, producers of content on Clear Channel do so. So, what's the difference? Well, again, it's narrow casting. Uh, Clear Channel delivers a particular demographic. Uh, it also has a different advertising model in that most advertising on talk radio is local. 
Yep. Um, which is not the case with NBC, which most of the advertising is national. So um, the the Clear Channel also will give away its programs to most local radio stations uh, in exchange for the advertising time that they they hold back. So they're again reaching, trying to reach a very narrow audience, but one that's intense and loves politics and loves to hear Rush Limbaugh, their prime, uh, their their most important. Um, um, talk radio host, people that love to hear him, uh, whereas NBC is still, you know, in the same model of having to deliver news that's seen as objective, whereas Clear Channel is not delivering news, they're delivering opinion and entertainment. So do you have a sense of why the market or, or why the audience for those programs on Clear Channel uh, leans right in the way that I assume they must if they're fans of such programs as Rush Limbaugh and uh, Glenn Beck historically. Right. Uh, the audience is uh, conservative. There's very little in the nature of talk radio that leans left. There's a number of reasons for that. One is that of all the liberals in the United States, a very high proportion are people of color. And they have their own media that, uh, in terms of newspapers and radio stations and cities, uh, so that pulls part of the audience away from uh, these these national uh, syndicated programs. It's also the case that liberals uh, really like national uh, public radio, NPR. Yep. And so if they want to listen to the radio, they may veer toward that. I also think, uh, and you might appreciate that or maybe not appreciate it, find fault with it, as a political, as a social psychologist yourself, uh, that there's a personality type, uh, overgeneralizing, of course, but whereas liberals, I think, are more interested in hearing uh, shades of gray, yeah. where uh, conservatives believe there are fundamental truths. And talk radio, conservative talk radio delivers fundamental truths. There's a right way and there's a wrong way, and an American way and an un-American way, and so on. I think that that generalization is true of NPR liberals such as myself, but in the Twitterverse, I don't think that that's true. In what way? Well, I, I think that Twitter is, uh, and social media more generally, uh, and this is my impression, I can't cite systematic evidence admittedly, but I see much more what seems to fit your criteria of outrage rhetoric on Twitter. Uh, and I, and I tend to live when I'm on when I'm on Twitter, in uh, I, I tend to follow people who are left of center, and the rhetoric tends to be emotionally evocative, um, uh, including strong fear appeals, uh, examples meant to cite anger, uh, in ways that seem similar to what you're describing as outrage rhetoric. Uh, so it, it's very different from what I hear from hosts on NPR. As I don't know if you spent much time. On Twitter, but is is that not your sense that uh, I, liberals no, with, on social media tend to be much more uh, uh, likely to engage in that outrage rhetoric? Yes, they are. Uh, in the outrage industry, uh, the book and the articles that you've been referencing, uh, we did not study uh, social media, but I've been doing it recently with some colleagues here, and we definitely see um, what you described as um, networks of like-minded individuals and. Uh, and they are more likely to use uh, outrage rhetoric uh, than the kind of language you'll hear on NPR. 
you know, let me let me just let me backtrack. Again, our emphasis is on media companies. Yep. Uh, so they produce programs. So on Twitter, you're your own company. Yep. So you may not have a sophisticated marketing strategy as Clear Channel Communications, but you just do it because it feels good or entertains yourself. Right. Or, or it gives you a sense that you're being virtuous but it, it, and, and making a difference, but at very low cost. Right. So in thinking about what you've studied, I wonder if you have, what's your sense of, the relative benefits and costs to our democracy of this proliferation of outrage rhetoric? So we've always had, as you pointed out earlier with your example of Senator Sumner, we've always had outrage. We've always had uh, provocateurs. What's uh, I think different now is that the media that we are listening to, and it's a, it's a big number, uh, outrage audiences um is that it makes us makes our views harder makes it Mm -hmm. more difficult to compromise Mm -hmm. uh and uh it has facilitated the rise of uh president trump who whether you like him or not i think you will find you know agree that he's unyielding and nasty Mm -hmm. uh his enemies uh and it's an ugly side of american politics and um we shouldn't pretend that you know, the alternative, if we, President Trump steps down as some kind of uh, ideal society where we talk in uh, college professor language. <laughs> you know. uh, so there's still going to be uh, a nasty edge to politics. But uh, I think that we've, we've moved to a society where politics is just too much of a blood sport. And we need to get back to the stage where uh, members of Congress of opposite parties and opposite point of views could denounce each other, but then go into the committee rooms and come up with synthetic pieces of legislation that were each side got something. And we're not there at this, at the present time. So I think we've, I think the outrage industry is contributing to the inability of America to uh, effectively confront its problems or more effectively confront its problems. Uh, as I'm sure you've noticed, one of the latest controversies involves uh, former Vice President Joe Biden's recent uh, comments at a fundraiser where he was, and it sounds as if he was rather inartful, which is not novel for Biden, of course, but he was rather inartful in the way that he expressed, I would say, nostalgia for a time when there was more bipartisanship uh, in Congress and one of the things that's unfortunate, arguably, about his comments was he cited as examples his ability to work with uh, senators who were notorious uh, segregationists. But one of the things that that, con- that controversy led me to was um, a Washington Post monkey cage article by Laurel Harbridge Young, who the headline of which is, Congress is more bipartisan than you think. And her argument is in part that, yes, there's been a decline in uh, bipartisan votes. But on her analysis, that's been a function of decisions by congressional leadership to only bring forward or to predominantly bring forward uh, bills that divide the party sharply, bills that have strong majority party support and very little support uh, in the minority party. But if you look at bipartisanship in other ways, namely bipartisan sponsorship of bills, she argues that it's actually 
been pretty constant. I wonder if if that argument resonates uh, with you, especially someone who studied Congress before. Yeah. I'm going to politely disagree with Professor Hartridge. Okay. Uh, I don't think, you know, the sponsorship of legislation tells us very much since um, most bills don't go anywhere. So you have, you have co-sponsors from both parties just putting their names on bills so they can tell their constituents you know, well, I've signed on to the such and such act. So the leadership, uh, her analysis of the leadership dynamic strikes me as wrong because the leadership reflects what the rank and file want. And I think the rank and file are very conscious of what, particularly on the Republican side of what Fox is saying, or, you know, maybe a little less so on the liberal side with MSNBC. But the reality is that the outrage industry and just the general media industry now is a gigantic mirror on Washington. And as a mirror, it reflects back into the constituencies of what their own individual legislator uh, is doing. So whereas before the 1950s, which I nostalgically referred back to, um, where Congress could do work inside of committee rooms, even though on the surface they were disagreeing, uh, that's harder to do now. And so, the, uh, you know, I think the proof in the pudding is what kind of major legislation is passing Congress uh, at this time. And there are bills that get by, but, you know, the biggest bills that I can think of, say the Affordable Care Act or President Trump's tax cut, um, are bills that were passed by one party over the other. So are you nostalgic for? days when the news was delivered by the likes of Cronkite and Brinkley. That is, when I read your work, um, I'm tempted to think that uh, there's a kind of nostalgia for the good old days of media. Um, is that a fair characterization of your, your view on the changes in the media industry? I think the uh, outrage industry is much more a negative than a positive. It, um, it exacerbates and uh, coarsens American politics. It, there are positives in that it helps to engage people. It may um, provoke some people to get out off the couch and go work to register voters. But I think on the whole, it's a negative. Now, I don't want to say we sh- should just have sort of neutral media. I think it's important to have opinion media. Uh, But I think we are at the stage where the opinion media uh, is so front and center because its business model uh, nurtures outrage that things have gotten out of balance. So I do wish that the NBC Nightly News and ABC and CBS, I do wish that they were a little bit more central and the outrage industry uh, and opinion media less so. Would you agree that there are some issues such as, at least for me personally, the separation of families at our southern border that warrant outrage? Yes, I do. Uh, and that's a, a wonderful it's a wonderful example and how vivid it is. Uh, it's a horrible episode. Yeah. But yes, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be so 
passive that you know anything that happens we say well you know you know so be it we'll we'll, we'll try and solve that quietly so yes uh, you know politics is about passion the you know the uh, boston tea party was about passion and we weren't even a country then so yeah any society is going to be a mix of advocacy and anger as well as i think well-meaning people that are trying to bring together solutions so the sadness uh, about the southern border is that parties you know really re- are not working together to resolve uh, immigration problem and i would say one reason is that when president bush tried to solve the immigration problem uh, that the conservative outrage industry got all over them and uh, as a result the people that had been had signed on like marco rubio pulled back and killed it and there hasn't been really a serious effort since. So that's the outrage industry. And, um, and that's unfortunate. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Jeffrey Berry for taking the time to talk with me. I very much enjoyed our conversation and hope to get him back on at some point in the future. Also, even though his co-author Sarah Soberai wasn't available for this episode, I hope she'll join me someday as well. For more information on them and the topics we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where there will be relevant links, including at least one link to information about Clear Channel's rebranding as iHeart Communications. So warm, so fuzzy. To provide feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can go to Twitter and mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or you can go to iTunes where I am always grateful for reviews. In any case, thanks for listening and be well.